thank you for joining us for the next edition of the Farm Focus podcast. Uh, today, I have with me John Newton and Michael Nevue, who are economists at AFBF, and we're going to be talking about the economy, agriculture, and COVID. I am going to turn to John and Michael and ask for you guys to tell us a little bit about what you do at AFBF, and then we'll dive into some questions. John, do you want to start? Sure. I'm John Newton. I'm the chief economist for American Farm Bureau Federation. Uh, we've got a, a great team of economists uh, at AFBF, and my job is uh, to do whatever they tell me to do and, and make sure that they're happy at, at Farm Bureau. Uh, and, and we're very fortunate to work on behalf of our members across the country. So looking forward to this podcast. Great. Thanks, John. Michael? Uh, sure. So I'm Michael Nevu. I am one of those uh, on the econ team that John just mentioned. I primarily work in the uh, livestock and uh, dairy sectors, but I also cover uh, a few other things like data privacy and hemp as well. Great. Well, thank you both for joining us. I look forward to our conversation today. Uh, to start off, um, recently the econ team published a market intel on um, farm profitability in 2020. And the, the headline said it was a false positive. Can you talk a little bit about 2020 farm income and why it is a false positive? Well, farm income uh, this year is projected at, is now projected at $120 billion. That's the second highest all time. But, uh, you know, in, in my sense, it's, it's not a real reflection of what's going on on the ground. Cash receipts from crop and livestock sales actually went down by $3 billion this year. They're the lowest since 2016. Uh, the reason why we're, we're talking about an improving farm economy is primarily on the back of nearly $50 billion in government payments uh, this year. The CFAP 1 and 2 payments, uh, about $23 billion uh, there. Traditional farm bill program payments, uh, you know, 10, 10 billion plus. Uh, so, so I think that's why it's, it's more of a false positive. Do you think... Um, you know, kind of looking at those numbers, um, how does that impact, you know, when you hear that we, we've had really great farm profitability, how does that impact, you know, policy discussions and, and what we need to be talking about looking into the new year um, in terms of Farm Bureau priorities and agriculture priorities in general? Well, I think, you know, going into the next farm bill, that's obviously going to be part of the conversation. Um, not only, you know, where are commodity prices, where are markets, how, how are these programs going to work, but I think we'll look back at, at this level of ad hoc support. So it, it's going to be a tough job. Uh, you know, advocating for a stronger farm bill is, is definitely something that's going to be on our priority list uh, with this new Congress. Great. Thanks, John. So switching slightly, um, and still on the same theme, you know, obviously in 2020, we've dealt with something that none of us have dealt with before, a huge pandemic that completely changed the way we're living our lives right now. And obviously that has had a massive effect on the agriculture economy. I know we could probably spend three hours talking about how COVID in, impacted agriculture, and we are going to talk, you know, in more detail about some of the elements. But in big picture, can you talk a little bit about what has happened over the last um, many months that we've been dealing with COVID in agriculture? I'll, I'll turn to Nevu here because he's been <laughs> he's been the expert, especially when it comes to cattle markets. So, 
Um, I think big picture, it's really helpful to take a step back and think about how we in America consume our food. Um, Pre-pandemic, before COVID, we were looking at a world in which, you know, the majority of American food dollars were being spent away from home. Uh, they were not going to grocery stores and cooking at home. They were going out to baseball games, ordering hot dogs. They were spending a lot of money at fast food restaurants, sit-down restaurants. And what are all those events have in common during COVID? We can't do them anymore. So it's one of those situations where the the demand channels, which with consumers were interacting with food, were, were just changed overnight. Uh, this wasn't a slow descent into coronavirus. This was something where the stay-at-home orders hit and people were ordered to shelter in place. So uh, that meant that the food system just anybody who any kind of food that was going through those other channels it just disappeared that that demand disappeared overnight so this isn't something where you can easily just snap your fingers and move all the product that was going into one side into the other uh, some of it uh, it just it makes sense in terms of you don't think about package size um, when consumers are ordering uh, a bag of shredded mozzarella at the store, it comes in those very small little packages, but a pizza shop is gonna be ordering these 10 pound bags. So you can't just switch that over. There's also some regulatory red tape that was difficult to move around. So uh, that kind of helps explain how you saw those shutdowns really impact the way consumers were, were consuming food. Gotcha. And now that, you know, we're, we're still well into COVID, but there seems to be a little bit more um, balance in terms of folks are, you know, going, especially curbside service and taking out food, and there there is some restaurant activity as well. Has that, aside from all the, you know, the payments, the CFAP payments and things, has that helped agriculture recover a bit as well? I, I think so, um, especially this. A lot of those restaurants, they're doing, they're getting really creative. You mentioned curbside pickup is one. They're, they're doing everything they can to stay alive. And uh, that has been helpful for overall food demand. Um, another thing that you think about when consumers spend those dollars is a lot of people thought, okay, we spend, you know, $100. If it's 50 going to the grocery store, 50 going to restaurants, we'll just shift that over. Well, that's not necessarily true because think about a burger that you make at home. It's going to have, it's going to cost a lot less than the burger that you go out and eat. There's a lot of value add going in that. So it's not a direct one-to-one -one shift of dollars moving into the grocery stores. Uh, but we did see uh, retail sales pick up quite a bit. Uh, early on in the pandemic, you had the uh, those pictures on social media of empty meat cases, uh, empty shelves at stores. Um, at no point do I genuinely feel that we were saying, uh, facing a food shortage in this country, uh, but there were you know, concerns at certain times about supply availability of certain types of meat products in certain regions of the country. You had to be a little bit more uh, flexible when you went to the store and you may not be able to get your original grocery list is one of them. Um, but I do think those, those restaurants staying open has helped, especially for a lot of those uh, agricultural products like dairy, that it's a shorter trip from the uh, farm down into the end consumer. It doesn't go through as much processing all the time as some of those, some of those other products. So I do think that has been very helpful to ag, yes. Have you seen any trends that have emerged in particularly in the more recent months as things have stabilized a little bit more um, just in terms of food and consumption? I'm certainly eating more. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we're, we're all going to emerge a couple pounds heavier or maybe more like 30 or 40 pounds heavier. 
Um, I, I do think the the trend that we saw early on in the pandemic, and again, I focus mainly on the, the livestock and, and meat markets. So early on in the pandemic, you saw a huge consumer shift towards uh, what we call the middle meats uh, of the cow. Um, so that's going to be, I mean, sorry, away from the middle meats towards the end meats of the animal. Um, the end meats are going to be more economical. They tend to go into things like roast, ground beef, which you buy a lot more of those at the grocery store, whereas the middle meats are the more valuable cuts and they, they add a lot of value to the animal. Uh, but things like tenderloin, not many consumers are going out to eat at a steakhouse and not many consumers grill uh, filet mignons at home. So uh, that's one trend that we saw early on that I think it's, it's kind of reversed itself a little bit. Um, you still have those end meats being big drivers, but uh, you've been seeing, especially moving into the holiday season, um, demand pick up uh, from the consumer end on some of those more expensive uh, middle meat cuts. Great. So... You, you've led us very nicely into what I wanted to talk about next, which was, you know, meat processing and some of the livestock markets um, and, and what we've seen. Um, obviously, in the early days of the pandemic, as you referenced, we saw a lot of upheaval, um, both on the processing side and in the markets. Um, but it, it seems like things have stabilized um, in, in recent months. And you know, what, what, what are you seeing now? You know, what are we seeing in terms of, you know, the meat processing side, for example, livestock markets? Um, you know, where do you see us now? And maybe where do you see it going in the next few months? So th this, this area, whenever back in the summer, I'd be talking to folks about the pandemic uh, and the, the market response that we saw in livestock and meat markets. I tried to break it out into what I see as two separate events. We have the demand event, which I had already covered, that was the consumer freaking out. They were buying in bulk and stocking up their freezers, and that was happening in late March, early April. Uh, then we had about a month lag until we started to see a supply event, which is exactly what you were referencing. Um, we started seeing in, uh, plants go down for weeks at a time, and even bigger impact than the entire plant going down is the rest of the plants that we were able to operate uh, were having reduced throughput through those plants because they were operating under social distancing and and having difficulty moving product through, um, especially you get down into poultry, a lot of that is elbow to elbow work in the plants and they, there's a lot more hum, human hands that go into processing that further down into different cuts. Um, you also saw the, on the beef and pork side, cuts make it to the grocery store that you normally don't see because they didn't take the time to add that extra value because they couldn't get enough plant workers in there. Um, moving forward, I think, this is just Michael's opinion, um, A, I got to clarify, I'm not an epidemiologist. So, so much of continuation of demand throughout the winter, uh, a lot of those restaurants are going to be able to do outdoor seating. Uh, that's a big uh, drag on prices moving forward for these products. Um, and I can't say when the vaccine is going to be available and when we'll get back to normal. So take it all with a grain of salt. Um, but that is one where I think the packing plants already had their crash course. Um, I think that there are going to be disruptions. You are going to probably still see a few shut down potentially, but I don't think it's going to be as bad as we saw back in May uh, at the worst of it. And that's, that's just my opinion again, but it's, it's one of those, I think they've, they've learned and got learned how to deal with it and gotten a lot better at it. Uh, that's not to say everything's perfect. It's still, you know, risky for a lot of those workers going in there, but it's, I think it's one where uh, for the most part, I, I don't see, the shut the shutdown of of the industry like we saw back in May. 
Um, moving forward, uh, I already mentioned that beef demand is actually picking up for some of those middle meats. Uh, there's actually some worries that uh, market participants uh, aren't going to have that normal end of year rally in beef prices, but I think most people have, have turned out that those fears were unfounded. We've had a strong price rally began to kick in around early November. Uh, we're looking pretty strong in just domestic beef demand right now, and it's actually been pretty strong throughout most of the year. In terms of the cattle supplies, um, we're pretty much through the backlog of animals. So another side effect of that, those plants being shut down as we started to see a lot of animals pile up in the system because they couldn't, they had nowhere to go. It, it, there was more animals than there just was uh, of space uh, in the plants for them. So, uh, it took several months throughout most of the summer, but I think everybody would agree that we're mostly through that backlog of animals. And now we're starting to hit a little bit of a hole in, in uh, slaughter-ready cattle uh, because, again, back in April, May, we, we saw placements in the feed yards go down. And, you know, they're on the feed yards six to eight months or so, and we're about six months out or so from whenever that happens. So that that's going to be a boon for uh, producer prices. We're looking at fat cattle being uh, pretty healthy prices right now. That's really interesting. Um, and you know, one of the one of the things that we've heard a lot about, especially from our members in Pennsylvania, are some of the folks that have cattle for custom processing, that there's still a lot of backlogs in that system where it it's you know months and months out before you can get um, an animal processed for custom purposes. Um, are you able to talk any, a little bit about that um, at all? Um, and I, I guess I would also say, you know, just on the policy side and the legislative side, I know those are some of the things that we've been working on um, at the congressional level is trying to figure out how we can make that process better uh, for not only consumers, but our members as well. Um, I, I would add on to that saying that, you know, depending on where you are in the country, it's as much, much as two years out, people can't get a slot for some of those custom processors. It's, uh, they're definitely, we, like I said, we're mostly through a backlog in, in the, the big plants, but you're right, there still is very much a very competitive market for trying to, for people who, you know, my father-in-law trying to take whatever he has down to the local custom plant. If he doesn't already have a spot, he's probably not gonna be able to do it. Um, now, when we talk about the policy side, uh, AFBF, uh, over the summer, can, uh, President Zippy Duvall convened a group of 10 state presidents to what we uh, ended up naming the Cattle Market Working Group. Now, uh, part of that was in response to both the Holcomb, Kansas plant fire we saw last year and to the COVID response that we had. Uh, now, these presidents uh, debated and went, and went down the whole uh, supply chain about what happens and what kind of improvements can we as an organization and as an industry uh, try to make moving forward to ensure that it doesn't happen like that again. Uh, and something that we did talk about and touch on quite a bit in our final report is uh, kind of what I would say is an all of the above approach to uh, slaughter capacity. Um, and we do, you're right, the, from the policy area, that is something that we did concentrate on is, is looking at those smaller to medium-sized plants and what can we do to incentivize um, the, those plants to be able to operate more. So I have one more question for you for right now, and then you can relax for a minute and I'll put John on the hot seat. Kick it back um, to John. <laughs> <laughs> but if you can put your crystal ball cap back on again, and you know we 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 now have i've lost track of how many months but since march we've we've been in this covid world and we still have some months to go but let's say in however many months down the road covid is behind us 
and we're, we're looking towards the future. How, according to Michael, has COVID impacted the livestock industry and maybe what changes would we see in the future? You know, economists hate that question. <laughs> we all want to fall back on it depends uh, on one hand or there's so much uncertainty. And, and you know, that's, that's the truth. But under the pretense of your question, uh, there is no more COVID. So uh, really, we don't know when, when that's going to be done. But once it is done, I, I think you'd be crazy to suggest that the industry would not have made some pretty major adjustments moving forward. I think you're going to see a lot more investment in automation at these uh, slaughter facilities. Uh, some, some probably lend themselves more than others. Uh, but I think that's an area where there's already been a lot of talk, um, a lot more uh, investment in robotics type. Uh, anything you can do to how anything that these plants can do to, to look at replacing as much human labor as they can, because in a situation like a pandemic, uh, humans are the ones that are getting sick and they have trouble getting them into the plants to be able to operate on this stuff. Great, thank you. You did, you did just fine for not liking <laughs> these types of questions. Okay, so now you can take a deep breath and we're gonna turn to John. Um, although I know you might chime in a little bit too because you work on dairy as well, but so I know, John, you know, when we think about dairy, we know that it's an industry that has seen much volatility in the recent years. And probably if we look at, when we look back at 2020, 2020 is going to be a, a year of, again, volatility and uncertainty in the dairy industry. So if you look at 2020, um, a year that most dairy farmers, I think, would have said coming into it that it could have been a year of recovery. You know, what do we say about 2020 when we look at a dairy and what happened? I know that's a broad question. Well, I, I think, you know, the volatility that we saw was, um, you know, unprecedented to see cheese prices fall to a dollar, then skyrocket to a record high, three dollars. Uh, that had a, you know, we're still dealing with the consequences of that through what are called negative PPDs. So, you know, federal orders obviously uh, came under the spotlight this year too uh, because of some of the challenges. Uh, but I think one of the things that, 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 that helped the dairy folks is uh, nearly $3 billion in ad hoc support from CFAP1 and CFAP2. Uh, so that, that helped uh, uh, heal some of those wounds that we saw from, you know, depooling and negative PPDs. Uh, things look like they're uh, you know, kind of coming back to normal. Uh, I don't think we're going to see, uh, at least I'm, I don't know if we're going to see another food box program, uh, but, but absent uh, that, I think things are probably going to stabilize a little bit. That's definitely good news uh, for dairy farmers. You know, in the early days of the pandemic, one of the things that was probably most shocking and hard to see was at a time where there there was some dairy missing from the shelves in the grocery stores at the same time dairy producers were dumping milk. Why did that happen? Well, you know, I think as, as Michael alluded to, you had, you had a supply chain designed for the restaurant channel. Um, you know, that's going to include a lot of, a lot of dairy products. So you had some plants that, uh, you know, quite frankly, no, I don't need to make a 10 pound bag of mozzarella cheese right now. So, uh, you had milk fighting for, you know, plant space, uh, plants that were idling some capacity uh, throughout the country. Uh, you know, it's going to lead to people 
uh, dumping milk. Uh, you know, it's, I, I think what was even more frustrating were signs limiting how much milk people could buy. Uh, so retail was kind of rationing uh, that a little bit. And, and luckily they, they came around and stopped rationing milk and, and uh, we were able to, you know, better coordinate the dairy supply chain to get milk where it's needed. One of the things that we've been hearing a lot about over the last few months has been the negative PPD issue and depooling. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, why, why we got into that situation and if there's any solutions for getting out of that for the future? Well, the, the, the reason why we got into the negative PPD situation, um, you know, really is uh, you had cheese taken off like a missile uh, and everything else was still sitting on the bottom. Um, you know, the other dairy product prices didn't, didn't fly up the way we saw cheese. And, and, you know, not to get too technical on federal order, you know, accounting and milk pricing rules, because we need about 20 of these podcasts. Uh, but, but a result of that and that widespread was negative PPDs. Then when the PPDs are negative, the manufacturing plants that have cheese milk don't want to put it in the pool because then they'd have to pay money. So they keep it out. And that makes the PPD even more negative. So that's why farmers are, you know, talking about, well, we need to change the milk price formulas. We need to do something about depooling. Um, you know, the reality is that pandemic sh shined a big old honking flashlight on um, some of the un unintended consequences uh, that, that probably uh, don't rear themselves as often, uh, but just pandemic, food box, class one milk prices, you know, it all kind of created the perfect storm for these record large negative PPDs. And for farmers that did face those negative PPDs, from what I understand, um, even if they did have risk management plans and tools in place, they weren't able to utilize them in terms of the losses that they faced from the negative PPDs, right? Yeah, that's, I mean, you know, if you were hedging on the CME, and that tells you class three milk is 24, 25 bucks. Well, you're not getting that with a negative PPD. Uh, dairy revenue protection is based off that same exchange. So we're not capturing the negative PPD. Uh, dairy margin coverage is based on the all milk price. Uh, that's a survey of what plants are paying for milk, not what farmers are getting paid. So that's not capturing the negative PPD. Uh, the mailbox milk price is capturing some of that negative PPD. Uh, but it's lagged by about four months, so you can't use that as a safety net uh, tool. So, yeah, I mean, you did the right thing, and then, you know, PPDs hit, and you weren't compensated uh, what you thought you, you had in place. Luckily, like I said earlier, you know, $3 billion in ad hoc payments to the dairy sector alone, uh, you know, $46.5 in total direct payments, but $3 billion of dairy is, that's a record high. They've never seen that much ad hoc support. And I think that certainly helped uh, folks bridge the gap and deal with some of these negative PPDs. Yeah, it, it's definitely been tough watching our dairy farmers go through the challenges they face this year. And um, it, it's, it's been hard sometimes when we don't have uh, specific solutions, but we've also been working hard on many angles trying to make sure that we can have the best environment, not only for our dairy farmers, but for all of our farmers who belong to, to Farm Bureau. Um, you know, one of the, the solutions that we've, we've been talking about or options that we've been talking about 
and you referenced it earlier, is federal order reform and the idea of modified, modified block voting. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and, and maybe even the American Farm Bureau Federal Order Working Group uh, from last year and you know, maybe talk about some of the things that we're working on? Well, you know, not to get too in the weeds on federal orders or, or how you change them, um, you know, because that, that's pretty complicated. Uh, I mean, we can, anybody can uh, try to go to a hearing and, and try to get the rules changed. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, dairy farmers don't have an opportunity to cast an individual ballot. And the voting delegates at our 101st convention uh, adopted policy that would provide an opportunity for dairy farmers to cast an individual and confidential ballot on federal order reform. I mean, this, this uh, ultimately, it impacts, you know, the, the farm price that they get at home. Uh, and to say that uh, you, you can't have a vote on something that impacts you that close to home, um, you know, we, we adopt a policy to, to try to hopefully get that. And I think we've had good conversations with, uh, you know, leaders on the House Ag Committee uh, on how uh, we can get that change. It's an administrative change. We have to amend the Ag Marketing Agreement Act. Uh, we found some friends at USDA that, that uh, I think have helped us along the way. Uh, you know, if we can do that, we can get farmers a, a seat at the table. Uh, and it's not anti-co-op. It's saying, look, if, if um, you know, the co-op can block vote for anybody that doesn't want to vote, but if I want to, if I would like to vote, I should be able to vote. Um, you know, if we can get that change done, you know, you talk about how complicated milk pricing rules are, uh, that's because the rules are written by folks that are, you know, moving trucks all over the country and uh, pooling milk all the time. Milk pricing rules weren't written by folks at their kitchen table, actual hard working, uh, you know, dirt, dirt on their hands, dairy farmers. And so hopefully we can bring them back to that table and make things a little bit better moving forward. You know, I, I told I don't know who I was on a call with the other day. I said, look, uh, if we don't do this now, you're going to go to a hearing, and the next time we go to a hearing, it'll be 10 years from now, we're going to have half the dairy farmers that we have in this country. So we've got an opportunity to do something. I think it's long overdue. Uh, we just need, you know, folks to, to understand and support that idea, and hopefully uh, we, can, we can find champions for that. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the things that uh, we're all looking forward to working on, you know, obviously we've been working on it now, but in the, the new Congress, I think there's a lot of opportunity for positive change and we're all going to work together to try to see what we can do on this issue. So because the I best put- best grassroots game in town. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and, uh, you know, when our members come up with the policies that gives us, I think, greater I know it gives us greater legitimacy when we do go to Congress and talk about why our members care about these issues. So I asked Michael the question about, you know, putting on the, the crystal ball and looking ahead. I'm going to do the same thing to you. Um, so if you put on John's crystal ball on your head and say what happens in a post-COVID world in the dairy industry, give us your best shot. Well, geez, um, you know, I, well, you can't say it depends, right? That's, that's <laughs> not the right answer. Uh, but but that, is, that is the fact, it depends. When you think about uh, what COVID's done, uh, not just here, uh, but just about every major economy entered a recession, China's back out of it a little bit. Uh, that impacted their demand, their, their ability to purchase uh, U.S. products. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, uh, when the world gets back to normal, uh, export markets resume, 
Uh, that's going to be a good thing. I think keep your eye on the phase one agreement. Uh, China buys a lot of dairy, just not from us. Uh, so if we can find a way to, to get a bigger foothold there, that's good. Uh, keep your eye on the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, will President-elect Biden seek to re-engage on that, uh, CPTPP? Uh, that had a lot of benefits for dairy. Uh, so, you know, and Secretary Vilsack is very public about uh, his goal to continue to expand U.S. dairy exports. Uh, the export's the key. Uh, because we've proven that we could turn the cow on pretty darn good. Milk production increases at two or three percent a clip. Um, you know, we need to we need to find a home for that overseas, and that's what's going to be uh, key for for milk prices moving forward. Because uh, I think domestic use, except for cheese, you know, domestic cheese consumption continues to climb. Fluid milk consumption is is slowly falling. Uh, the export market again is is where it's at. Great. So in wrapping up, we've talked about a lot of different things today um, and wanted to see if either of you wanted to mention anything that we didn't talk about that you think our listeners might be interested in, whether it's economics, ag economics, you know, COVID, what have you. I'm going to let Michael go first so I can copy off his exam. <laughs> uh, you know, I, th I think one thing, one <clears throat> big takeaway for me at least is uh, COVID has really shown and proven that, you know, at, at times our our supply chain can be very delicate, but it can also be very resilient. Um, again, I've, I'm coming at it from more of a livestock angle. Uh, I think when all is said and done, uh, producers, uh, packers, retailers, consumers are all going to have gone through quite a bit, but I, I think all said and done, we, we ended up dealing with it. Uh, we did pretty good, all, everything considered. Uh, uh, early on in the pandemic, things were looking a lot darker uh, for the industry. And, and it was still, don't, don't let that take away from how difficult it was while we were in it and how difficult it still is going to be uh, to continue to climb out and, and get us back to where we were. But I, I do think that it, it's been a lot more resilient and stronger than, and than people would have initially given it credit for. That's a great answer, Michael. John, your turn. Well, I'm just uh, probably more forward-looking, just thinking a little bit about uh, how blessed folks in Pennsylvania are going to be to have, a, you know, Mr. Thompson on the Ag Committee, champion for Pennsylvania agriculture. Uh, you've got a great champion and, and Secretary Redding. Uh, you know, it's, it's all about thinking about building these new relationships. As this new Congress comes to town, uh, this new administration uh, you know, we've got an opportunity to have a seat at the table uh, because of our members across the country uh, and, and how effective they are at communicating the needs of agriculture. So uh, President Zibby Wall says all the time, we've got to get outside our fence rows. Uh, I know we can't really do that without wearing a mask, but, uh, you know, it's all about being engaged. And because of what everybody else is doing, uh, we've got such a strong voice here in Washington, D.C. Uh, we've been doing it for over 100 years, and we're going to keep doing it. So I think that's that's how I'll end that note. We're we're very blessed. It's a great answer, John. And you know, I, I think all of us can safely say we didn't expect 2020 to look this way. And professionally, we probably didn't expect that we were going to be doing our jobs this way. But I think you're right. It's testament to Farm Bureau and the relationships we've built and continue to build. 
um, that we've been able to do really great things for our members and have our members be such great advocates uh, for our grassroots policy, even under these crazy times that we've faced in 2020. So I thank you both for joining us today, John and Michael. You are you and your team um, at AFBF are wonderful advocates for our members, and I really enjoyed your perspectives today. And I appreciate you joining us on today's Farm Focus podcast. So I hope everybody has a great day. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of Farm Focus, please subscribe. More episodes are on the way, and all of our past episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and on Podbean at pfbcast.podbean.com. Thanks for listening.